not only did I get the little um, Cinderella uh, figure, but someone told me that if I preach good today, that I will get a sucker, and they gave it to me already. If you will open your Bibles to Acts chapter 24. Before I pray, let me just alert you that my introduction will be a little longer than, than normal, um, but we will proceed from the, to the conclusion uh, rather quickly. So do not be dismayed when I have us read the passage uh, later in the sermon. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would be here as we open your word. I ask that you would be our teacher in order that, um, that we would not simply uh, hear from men, but rather hear from God. Uh, we thank you for your word, that it is the inerrant, inspired, and authoritative uh, word of the true and living God. Help us to love our Lord Jesus even more as we reflect now for the next half hour or so on your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Before I begin this sermon, I need to make a couple of disclaimers. Uh, many of you saw out on the, the marquee that uh, the name Tim Tebow in the title, uh, the Apostle Paul and Tim Tebow. So let me say, first of all, that being a Georgia Bulldogs fan, I can also be a Tim Tebow fan now that he has graduated from college. Secondly, being an Atlanta Falcons fan, I can cheer for Tim Tebow since uh, he is in the uh, AFC and the Falcons are in the NFC and they do not play each other this season. The only way that the Broncos and Falcons will play each other this season is if they meet in the Super Bowl. And if this should, be, if this should happen, I will not be cheering for Tim Tebow. I will be cheering for John Abraham, the Falcons' defensive end, to break one of Tim Tebow's bones. <laughs> Maybe just a finger on his throwing hand, but... My second disclaimer is this. This sermon is not about Tim Tebow. Uh, in my research this week, I was surprised how many... Um, how many sermons there are being preached on Tim Tebow across our nation today. Um, and they are lifting him up as an example to be followed. Tim Tebow is a sinner. However exemplary uh, his example, he will never be perfect and therefore can never serve as our moral standard bearer. The Lord Jesus Christ is our Savior, not Moses, not David, not the Apostle Paul, and certainly not Tim Tebow. The reason I'm bringing Tim Tebow up this morning, however, is to examine the reactions that people are having to him in our culture. I've noticed a striking parallel between uh, Tim Tebow and how he is being treated and how the Apostle Paul was being treated uh, here in our text, uh, here in Acts chapter 24. 
So, that raises the question then. How does our culture's treatment of Tim Tebow parallel um, the treatment of the Apostle Paul? Well, listen to some of the accusations that have been brought just in the last two or three weeks against Tim Tebow. They are made in all seriousness. However, they make no sense. In Forbes magazine, no less, there's an article entitled, The Tim Tebow Mania Threatens to Shape American Politics. And this is not a compliment by the author. His point is that uh, Tim Tebow is going to be re- is going to be linked to the religious conservatives uh, inevitably, and it will influence people to vote uh, in a more uh, in a more Republican way as opposed to uh, voting for the Democrats. And so he's not happy about it. Bill Bill Maher, the stand-up comedian and political commentator, is really not happy about Tim Tebow's influence on our on our country. He says, "If now, if you haven't heard of Tim Tebow, he's the college quarterback slash religious nut the Broncos signed last year. Despite his having one tiny problem, he throws like a girl." I'm, and then he says, "I'm sorry, I take that back. Lots of girls throw." In other words, Tim Tebow does not. But that does not matter, he continues, uh, Bill Maher continues, but that does not matter to the faithful because Tim Tebow is so cuckoo for Christianity, he used to write Bible verses in the charcoal underneath his eyes. Creepy to some, but for redneck America, they couldn't love this guy more if he was sculpted out of bacon. The words man crush do not begin to describe it. And then he continues, but everything else he said was so debauched that I will not read it. And then there is David Fagan, who's writing in the Huffington Post. And his article is titled, The Tim Tebow, I'm sorry, The Tim Tea Party Tebow. Uh, He actually makes uh, Bill Maher sound sane. He said, "Did did we ever see the Jesus flag being waved so blatantly in our faces to where we cannot see the field anymore? And then he continues, the other answer to the question of why anyone would jump on a... Uh, would jump on a guy who's honoring God as opposed to all the other athletes who turn out to be less than stellar role models is that these less than stellar role models, even with their drinking binges and infidelities, usually possess one thing these ultra-religious types lack, and that is tolerance. This kind of blind faith in Jesus, this kind of glazed over look when you, when you see Tim Tebow, or when, when Tim Tebow mentions his BFF, that's the little texting language, I think it's like best friend or something like that. Uh, so when Tim Tebow mentions his BFF, which is Jesus, uh, is also usually accompanied by seriously radical beliefs. Sure, he might build a few hospitals and help a few orphans, but those hospitals might turn away a 17-year-old rape victim seeking an abortion. So he's, you know, he's, he's pretty stinged up and, and uh, has, has left reality uh, long behind. And then he continues, Religion is a very personal thing. It does not belong in schools, in the workplace, or in professional sports. It would be best for everyone, including Tebow, if he simply left Jesus in the manger where he belongs. Uh, David Fagan is not the only person that is angry about Tim Tebow's charitable giving. 
I found an article that is angry that Tim Tebow spent his entire signing bonus in less than 24 hours. His signing bonus was $2.5 million. And they're angry. And they're calling him immature for spending it in less than, less, in, in less than a day. Of course, what he did was he gave away his, his uh, signing bonus to charity uh, because he said he could live off his salary. But the kicker, if you think all that is crazy, the kicker is an article by Joshua Hammerman entitled my, entitled, my Tebow Problem. Hammerman is scared that if Tebow continues to win games in the incredible fashion that he is winning them, that it will cause Christians to become emboldened. Well, what, will it, what will that mean for America if Christians become emboldened? Uh, and if you read the article, you'll find that he is not joking when he, said, when, he, when he says he is deathly afraid of what the Christians will do. He says, if Tebow wins the Super Bowl against all odds, it will buoy his faithful as if he's the Savior. Um, and emboldened faithful people can do insane things like burning mosques, bashing gays, and indiscriminately bashing immigrants. While America has become more inclusive since Jerry Falwell's first political forays, a Tebow triumph could set those efforts back considerably. Why all this irrational hatred uh, for Tim Tebow? There was an article in the National Review by Daniel Foster that I think gets really close to hitting the nail on the head uh, with the title of his article. His title is Tim Tebow's Religion and Ours. You see what he did? He put Tim Tebow's religion on the other side of the conjunction. And then the subtitle is um, basically his... Authenticity irks our, our secular, selfish culture. And so he's saying our religion, and what he means by American culture's religion, uh, American culture's religion tends to be secular and self-centered. And Tim Tebow's faith and his generosity is irking our culture. Um, and then he concludes the article, People aren't upset at Tebow's God talk. They're upset that he might actually believe it. If you're visiting with us for the first time, let me uh, allow me please to quickly give you an overview of where we are. I've been preaching through the book of Acts. We're getting near the end. We're in chapter 24. And as we are near the end of the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul has been arrested. He has been delivered over to Governor Felix, who is in Caesarea, about 65 miles away from Jerusalem. And the Jewish elders, including the high priest and a lawyer named Tertullus, have traveled the 65 miles in order to lodge, and, to lodge their accusations against the Apostle Paul. The accusations are baseless and are simply born out of their irrational hatred against Paul. So listen to our text, Acts 24, beginning with verse 1, I'll read through verse 23. If you have a copy of the scriptures, let me encourage you to have it open. If uh, you do not, let me encourage you to have one of the pew Bibles and uh, open it to page, it says in the bulletin, uh, 1,119. 
to the word of God. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, or if you have your the, the pew Bibles, uh, it, it calls him a pest. Same, same, same idea. So we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out uh, from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in, this, in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than twelve days since I went up to, to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. Now after several years I came to bring alms to my nation and present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you to make accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they have found in me. Or they found when I stood before the council, other than this one thing, when I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. So the first accusation that they bring against the Apostle Paul is that he is a plague, or as the Pew Bibles say, he's a pest. Um, And basically what they're doing is they are calling him a troublemaker. And the argument that they are bringing is, well, there was no trouble in Jerusalem when, uh, when the Apostle Paul came, but after he showed up, this trouble um, arose. And so he is a troublemaker, they are trying to argue. And we know from reading uh, Roman history about Governor Felix that he had crucified many religious zealots who had caused trouble. And so undoubtedly, the Jewish elders are hoping that Felix will then sentence the Apostle Paul uh, to death by crucifixion. 
So that's the first accusation. The second accusation is that Paul is a cult leader. Uh, look again, or look at verse five, the last little phrase there. Um, he is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. So basically, what they are saying is that he is a cult leader. He's not part of the true Jewish religion. And then their third accusation is that Paul is irreverent. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 says, He he even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. And what they're charging is that Paul brought a Gentile with him into the temple area, and so by bringing a Gentile, he profaned the temple. But none of this is true. The Jewish elders, we're going to see in a, a few moments as Paul makes his defense, are really perjuring themselves. They are breaking the ninth commandment. And they are slandering the Apostle Paul. And all of this is in direct contradiction to what they are supposed to believe as the people of God. So then we ask, why the hatred for the Apostle Paul? Why all the law, why all the lies about the Apostle Paul? Well, Terry Johnson uh, said it well. He said the gospel is not a neutral commodity. It divides the world into two camps and evokes strong passions on both sides. Fanatics for Christ draw such attention and scorn that we sometimes forget about the fanaticism of the gospel's enemies. The opponents of biblical Christianity will sometimes go to extraordinary lengths to destroy the church and its ministers. Matthew Henry, the um, uh, 17th century um, Puritan, commented on this passage in, in Acts 24, and he said this, The pains that evil men take in an evil matter, their contrivances, their condensation, Uh, and their unwearied industry should shame us out of coldness and backwardness and indifference in that which is good. In other words, you were shocked a while ago when you heard some of the things being said about Tim Tim Tebow all because of his faith. And and it should shock us uh, and even shame us um, when we consider how cold we are sometimes and how indifferent we are to the things of God when we realize just what kind of reaction it evokes uh, from, from unbelievers. And the hatred that is directed to both Tim Tebow and to the Apostle Paul is really ultimately not directed at them, but directed at the Lord Jesus Christ who is the stone of stumbling, uh, the rock of offense. Well, let's look at Paul's defense in verses 10 through 21. The first, he answers the first accusation that he was a troublemaker in verses 11 through 13. And essentially, his, Paul's answer is that he had been in Jerusalem for 12 days. He did not preach publicly about Jesus. He did not get into anyone's business, but was minding his own business. So verses 11 through 13, Paul said, You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to 
to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. And then Paul answered the second accusation that he was a cult leader in verse 14. Uh, In verse 14 he says, But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. Whereas they are calling him a cult leader, the Apostle Paul is saying, No, I am very orthodox. I believe... Um, the Old Testament. And you will remember that the Old Testament was the only testament then. Uh, the New Testament was being written at the time, uh, and the various letters that constitute most of the New Testament had not yet been collected. They had been sent out to the churches. Some had yet to be written. Um, but in saying... And saying this about the New Testament that had been yet to be written is not to imply that the completion of the New Testament rendered the Old Testament obsolete. The Old Testament continually points us to the grace of God in the Gospel. The Old Testament continually highlights on every page God's power and His glory. And, God's, and, and the Old Testament gives us God's wisdom for living our lives. In other words, the Old Testament remains normative for our lives. The Apostle Paul said in Romans uh, 3.31, Do we then overthrow the law, in other words, the Old Testament, by by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. And so it's surprising to me how eager some Christians are to rip the Old Testament out of their Bibles. And then Paul answered the third accusation that he was irreverent in verses 15 through 20. So if you'll look again at your Bibles, verse 15, Having a hope in God which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience before both God and man. Now after several years I came to bring my alms to this nation and present offerings. While I was doing this they found me purifying in the temple without any crowd or tumult but some Jews from Asia and they ought to be here to make an accusation if they have anything to say against me or else let these men save what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. And so basically what he's saying is that he is very devout in his worship. He said that no one saw him bring a Gentile into the temple because he never brought a Gentile into the temple. And then he said, and I always take pains to have a clear conscience before God and men. Let me pause and ask you, do you always take pains to have a clear conscience before both God and men? That's very challenging. Because if the Holy Spirit has transformed your heart and has uh, changed your desires, then it will affect how you relate and how you act towards both God and all people? Or do you live your lives basically in indifference to God, indifference to other people? Do you put yourself before other people? Can you, with a clear conscience, 
say that you take pains doesn't mean that you perfectly live with a clear conscience, but you perfectly honor God and, and love your neighbor as yourself all the time. But do you take pains to do that? That's a sign of a heart that has been changed and transformed by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So why is Paul being, why is he so set on being devout and, re- and reverent? Well, it comes down to this. He believes in the resurrection of the dead. Look again at verse 15. He says, Having a hope in God which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. This is the real point of contention. When you boil everything down, the reason these people are so upset at the Apostle Paul is his hope in the resurrection. Uh, that, that is confirmed in verse 21, where he says, He stood before the council, and he cried out while standing among them, It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. What is so offensive about Paul's claim to believe in the resurrection of the dead? This is even further confusing when you realize that, as we learned last week, that the Pharisees, who, who made up a large portion of the elders who came to make their accusations, that they too believe in the resurrection of the dead. But here is the point of contention. If there is a resurrection from the dead, there is also a judgment. Look again at verse 15. He believes in a resurrection. Who is going to be resurrected? Everybody is going to be resurrected. There will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Everybody um, will be resurrected. And everybody will will be standing on that great an awesome day when we are spread out before the judgment seat of Christ and He, like a shepherd, separates the sheep from the goats, the righteous on His right, the unrighteous on His left. All humanity who have ever been born or ever will be, whoever will be born in the future will be there. You will be there. I will be there. My family will be there. We will all together experience a sight of glory and of holiness unlike anything we can begin to imagine. Hebrews 9.27 says, A man is destined to die once and after that face judgment. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9 says, Jesus will punish those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and of the majesty of His power. I look forward to that, that day with anticipation and with joy. But I also tremble when I think of those who do not know the Lord Jesus um, 
and do not obey his gospel. Because the scripture says they will be punished with an everlasting destruction, shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. This is why I believe people in our secular, our selfish culture are so angry at Tim Tebow. As Daniel Foster put it, people aren't upset at Tim, at Tim Tebow's God talk. They are upset that he might actually believe it. And I would add that they know deep down in their hearts that this is true. They know that there is a God. They know that there will be a resurrection. And they know that there will be a judgment. And they don't like it. So the question for us is, which hand will you be on on that great and glorious day when we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ as He is seated on His throne of judgment? Will you be on His right hand or on His left hand? Will you hear Him welcome you into eternal life? Or will He send you away into eternal punishment? Now here's the bad news. None of us in this room deserve to be on his right hand. All humanity is born on Jesus' left hand. And we all know instinctively that we are never going to be righteous enough in this life, no matter how many good things we do, to move ourselves from his left hand to his right hand. So how can we move from the left hand to the right hand. Well, this is what's so glorious. Jesus Christ, the judge who is going who is seated on his judgment seat, knew that we could never ever earn a righteous standing. So he is the judge, took off his black robe, and he put on the cloak of humanity. He became a human being as we are human beings, in order that he might die for human beings. He came and lived a perfect life that we could never live. He came and died a perfect death as a substitute for sinners. He satisfied the Father's justice fully, completely, and forever. So those who are on his right uh, are those who have fled to him who have entrusted themselves to Him, and who obey His gospel. And when they do that, the Lord Jesus Christ clothes them with new desires, with a new lifestyle, and a new righteousness that covers them from head to toe. Have you fled to Him as we pray together? Almighty God, I pray that every person under the sound of my voice will be on Jesus' right hand in glory. Father, I take great hope that every person that you have brought here this morning, that you have brought here with the purpose of drawing to yourself if they do not know you, and for those who do know you, that you would help us to anticipate with great joy that coming day so that we along with King David 
could know as our enemies gather against us that you have spread out a feast of blessing in their presence. That you will go with us. That you will never leave us. And that you will receive us into glory. Help us to live in the light of that day. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.